Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray together as we stand. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, how good it is to to rejoice as we just have in song that you are a God who speaks, uh, speaks as we have praised you for, speaks right to the very heart of us, uh, to the heart of men and women. Uh, speaks to our hearts as complex as they are, as uh, mixed up as they are so often, as uh, pulled in different directions as they are. Uh, we pray, Father, that as you speak to us tonight by your word and through your spirit, that you would give us uh, humility before that word to listen carefully. Uh, listen not only carefully, but listen obediently and listen uh, longing to be changed by you. And so we pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Well, please uh, turn back in your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're beginning uh, this series uh, looking at Ecclesiastes' life under the sun. Uh, The series is called, we're we're just uh, just beginning it really tonight, page 668, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 in the the church Bibles anyway. Beginning a new series and beginning really a new year as a church family, 2012, can you believe it? As I was uh, writing uh, that down this week at the start of the sermon, I wrote 2013, so I was getting ahead of myself. But 2012 uh, is upon us. Uh, where does life uh, circa January 8, 2012 find you? Uh, what state is life in for you? If you were to describe it, if you were to use a word or perhaps a sentence to describe uh, life for you as you move into this new year, uh, what's, what's it like for you? Are you perhaps a person who enters uh, this year pretty satisfied with life? Now, you might not say that out loud. That would be boasting, of course, but you might not even acknowledge it. You might not even uh, be prepared to claim that of your life. But relatively speaking... By most measures that people measure life by, uh, life is pretty good. In your working life, if you're a worker, perhaps you're satisfied with uh, where you're at in your career. Or perhaps if you were a worker, looking back over your life's achievements uh, in your career, you're you're pretty satisfied. Or perhaps uh, this year, if you're a student, as you move ever closer to what you hope is a promising career, you can see the the hurdles being uh, leapt over one by one and you can see you're almost there, almost at the point uh, where life indeed will be very satisfying when it comes to work. Or perhaps uh, this is a pretty satisfying uh, point in life for you because you're financially stable and that's no mean feat at the moment, is it? You pretty much want for nothing. You could always have more, and some do have more than you, but honestly, uh, Christmas was pretty easy. And you even had enough money left over to snap up the bargains in the sales. Uh, Life's pretty satisfying financially. Or perhaps uh, financially, you're making steady progress. You're paying down the mortgage, and you can see the end point. It's coming closer and closer, and it's not this uh, distant dot anymore. It's uh, just a number of payments away. Or you're building what will be a comfortable retirement. Or perhaps you've come into money unexpectedly and 2012 looks remarkably rosy. Or perhaps you're feeling quite powerful this year. Again, not something that we'd admit or say out loud. Uh, Not powerful in a sort of maniacal, well-domination kind of way, but you have power. Uh, Power to decide where you live, uh, power to decide what you're going to do with the days of your life. 
Or perhaps relationally, uh, life is pretty good for you, pretty satisfying. Your marriage is strong. Sure, you have your moments, but you're still together and the love is strong. Or you enjoy your family life, or you look forward to this year and you see the the friendships, see the long-held friendships, or perhaps new ones, and you're looking forward to enjoying them. Or perhaps it's simply the, the pleasures of life that await you in 2012. You're looking forward to the music you'll enjoy, or the food, or the sport. It's a big year for sport, 2012. Is that you? How about you in 2012? Uh, the life I've just described, uh, hearing such a life, is, is that, uh, does that ring a bell or is that pretty hard to take? To hear of this life where all your ducks are in a row, where everything is perfect or at least satisfying. And you may look around and see lives like that. But for you, circa 2012 is better described not as satisfying but broken. And perhaps 2011 was the year that your life literally broke into pieces. You enter 2012 shattered. Sounds dramatic, doesn't it? Uh, Perhaps over the top, but I know that for some here at least, that is exactly how it feels. January 2012, broken. For some, uh, that that experience of entering life that way uh, took only a day last year, only a day, only a moment in a day. Or perhaps further back, perhaps it wasn't as recent as last year when your life fell apart. It can be lots of things, can't it? The death, sudden or otherwise, of someone very precious to you, without whom 2011 makes little sense. Without whom uh, the joy of Christmas that's just passed and the expectation of a new year is all, well, pretty hollow. Or for others, it's entering this year with shattered relationships. And there'll be some here like that who've experienced perhaps the pain of divorce or experiencing now the estrangement from children or friends and no idea how to change that. Or for others, it'll be the loss of employment or perhaps, perhaps that hanging over your head as you enter this year or even drowning financially. There'll be many among us who uh, enter 2012 broken or at least uh, longing if life wasn't like this. If I had more money or more control or more friends or if that hadn't happened or if he was still with me, if I'd kept my job, uh, if I had more time to relax, then 2012 will be a satisfying year. And so for many of us, uh, myself included, we, we imagine this better life that exists somewhere over the rainbow. The problem in the end with that aspiration, and to be honest, the problem with even those who enter 2012 pretty satisfied by most measures, the problem uh, problem is Ecclesiastes. Whatever life we imagine we have in 2012, Ecclesiastes is for us a shot of adrenaline to shake us out of the illusion, the fantasy that we are in, to wake us up. Ecclesiastes calls us in life to wise up Wake up to a true view of life under the sun in 2012. Ecclesiastes does what we don't do. Essentially, that's what it's going to do for us. It does what we don't do. It's a lesson from one, the teacher, as he's called in our book, one who has actually stopped long enough in life to actually look at life under the sun. Look at it honestly and then prepared to tell the truth. 
Ecclesiastes uh, will do for us uh, what we won't do, and that is ask the questions we find hard to ask. And uh, here's my promise. Anyone, I think anyone who gives these words, the words of the teacher, the words of Ecclesiastes, a genuine hearing who stops to listen to him, whether they be a believer in God uh, this night or not a believer, uh, here's my promise. Ecclesiastes will strip your pride away. It'll strip from us uh, wrongly held aspirations that we may enter this uh, year with. It'll strip life back in 2012, back to the very basics. It will leave us feeling very raw. It'll strip from us idols that we have formed uh, over the days, over the years that lead up to this point. Idols that we have formed uh, as we live as human beings, as we live as workers and lovers and doers and searchers for meaning. All of that is going to be put under the microscope and seriously questioned. It's not going to be easy. Many read Ecclesiastes and find it an incredibly depressing book, but it's not depressing, but it is disillusioning. But as we'll find, that may be exactly what we need in 2012. We are to live the life we so long to live. And so prepare for the shot of adrenaline that is Ecclesiastes. And yes, the needle will hurt. Uh, Let's begin. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, page 668. Chapter 1 and verse 1, here it is. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here's our teacher for the next few months. Uh, Here's the one whose words we'll listen to, hopefully with great care. Uh, This man is uh, really the king of a very prosperous, wealthy, powerful nation in its prime. Many link him to Solomon. And as you listen to his words uh, here at the start of 2012, uh, content with life or longing for a different life, uh, meet your teacher. These are the words of a king who has more wealth, uh, more influence, more power, more respect than you will ever have or even dream of having. He is more educated, more experienced, more set up, more wise, we're told in verse 16, than, than we could ever, ever, ever dream of being. He is a giant of life, an expert of human life. He has done things on such a grand scale, all of life he's done on a grand scale. You name it, he's done it to the maximum. And we're going to see that as we go through this book. For example, if you flick to chapter 2 just now, you'll see one of his examples, the many achievements he has made throughout his life, achievements that we'd only dream of making. You see it there in chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, he's a builder. That's one of his achievements. The king, as I said, many link him to Solomon, is is a house builder and a landscaper. I don't know whether you've uh, done any uh, DIY over Christmas. Perhaps you're impressed with uh, what you've achieved. It took me a week and a half to put a shelf up in my daughter's room. I'm quite impressed with it. It's still standing. Well, this king built the temple in Jerusalem which is uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world, uh, a building so adorned with gold and precious jewels that people came for miles just to look at it. He did that. It took him seven years to finish the job, and then when he'd finished the job, he built an incredible house for himself. It took him 14 years to do that. And not only did he build an incredible house for himself, he then went on to build houses for each of his wives. Yes, wives, plural. There were many. And that's another story altogether, another aspect of life he has lived uh, to the maximum. Let's just say he was quite the ladies' man. And he was a landscaper. 
You know that uh, pride in the summer you get from uh, working in the garden when you've worked hard all day, you've uh, planted perhaps some flowers, you've put the old plant in, you've got it all arranged, you've tilled the soil, you've cut the grass, you've even uh, put the elaborate water feature in the corner of the garden and you sort of sit back at the end of the day as the sun is setting with a cool drink and you think to yourself, ah, haven't I done an amazing job? So excited are you uh, that you go and tell everyone about it at work on Monday. This wonderful achievement you've made. But unfortunately, you find yourself standing next to King Solomon at work on Monday. And so you're telling him about the water feature. And he says, that's great. But you know what I did? I, I, dug, uh, I, I didn't plant a, a garden, a few pansies in the corner of the garden. I planted forests and national parks I planted vineyards after vineyard after vineyard after vineyard uh, just for the heck of it. And uh, then when it came to my water feature, here's what I did. I dug giant craters in the ground to water my forests and national parks, lots of them. I put a giant dent on the surface of this earth, literally. If you go to Jerusalem now, you'll still see these giant craters that Solomon dug, the pools of Solomon, they're called. This man, our teacher, has lived life on a scale we could only dream of. He is no just a fly by night. He is uh, an expert in life. And verse 16, his uh, greatest claim to fame, his, the, the key line in his CV, verse 16, we're told he is wiser than any before him. He's incredibly wise. And so when he says, I want to teach you about life, we should listen very carefully. And so let me encourage you to do that in these weeks ahead of us. Listen to him. He doesn't want to tell you his life story for the sake of it. This isn't an exercise in boasting for the king. He wants to teach us. In fact, that's what he's devoted his life to. Verse 13, we're told he had devoted himself to study all of life, all of it, relentlessly exploring all experiences of human life under the sun, every activity. He explores work and wealth and power and time and relationships and justice and pleasure, all of it, not some of it. He's an expert in life under the sun. And having done all that study, having poured all of his immense resources into that study, his verdict on life, do you see it there in verse 2? Here comes the needle. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Wow. Wow. Now, surely uh, we, we see that verse and we could agree that there are parts of our lives that are, uh, seem to have no major purpose, fairly pointless even. Uh, Brussels sprouts, for instance. Uh, strictly come dancing. Sunscreen in the UK. Uh, the border agency. But our teacher is isn't saying that is he he's not some comedian uh, he's he's not the comedian on some uh, road show pointing out the banalities of life uh, we all know he's saying verse two you see all of it not some of it not the weird bits all of it everything your work your money your relationships time pleasure all activity is meaningless it is vapor literally it's a breath of a breath it's like chasing the wind Over all the aspects of life where we find meaning, he is going to graffiti the Hebrew word havel, futile, meaningless, vapor. All our activity, do you see it there, verse 3, under the sun. All our activity uh, under the sun is a phrase speaking of uh, the domain where we live uh, and breathe. Uh, We know it well, our world, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the real world. 
the place we know very well. This uh, near-perfect sphere that hurtles through space at some 67 miles an hour. All of us live here, hurtling around that ball of fire in the sky, the sun. Under the sun, that's where we live. It's an incredible place, isn't it? Filled with wonder and colour and sound, with music and taste and dirt and stone and wood and water and plants and fields. Filled with fish and fire and fruitcake. You name it, it's here. What a place. And the dimensions of life under the sun, this world, it's not small, is it? Uh, God hasn't given us a tiny little patch to play on. Uh, It's immense. It takes some 28 hours on the fastest plane we humans can create to fly from here to Sydney. That's, That's incredible. It's so big, so immense that I don't think we can, or we don't often see beyond it, do we? And so we end up living that way as if this was all there is. There's nothing beyond it. Functionally, we live that way. Whether we believe in God or not, we end up living as if life is merely life under the sun. That's all there is. Because just here, even just here, under the sun, there's so much possibility. So many activities lie before us. So much we could do in 2012. Who has time to think or even need to think or look beyond the sun? Why would you? So much here in all we do. Uh, But hear the words of our teacher. All of this, all our activities in 2012, as it was in 2011, meaningless. Vapour, wind chasing. And here's why. Here's why our teacher is so sure of that conclusion, that verdict. Uh, The reason he gives us in verse 3 in the form of a question, but it's really a statement. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils at under the sun? What's the point, he says, for all the possibility, all the wonder of this world, all the activity, it amounts to nothing, vapour. We live each and every day we have here on this beautiful ball, the, the earth, under the sun, and at the end of it all we'll breathe our last breath and absolutely nothing will have changed. James 4 verse 14 puts it this way, it says, What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Our teacher's conclusion of life under the sun, meaningless, meaningless. His reason, nothing is gained from all our activity. And what he's going to do through the chapters of this book is he is going to prove this case. And he's not going to use sort of vague philosophy to do it. He's not going to try random ideas with us. He's going to use real evidence, empirical evidence, observations of life in this world that we know. And we start that tonight with the observations he gives us in the poem that you see in verses 4 to 11. And essentially what he's going to say to us tonight, his first piece of evidence is this. uh, Life is meaningless because life is, well, it's just a circle. An utterly pointless circle. Let's have a look at these verses together, 4 to 11. He's going to give us four proofs, four evidences that life is this pointless circle. Here's the first of them, verses 4 to 7. He says, life is meaningless because our activity is pointless. Hang on, we say. Uh, We want to claim more than that for all we do under the sun, wouldn't we? We want to claim that our activity does have gain, that there are real goals, real achievements that we make. We're going somewhere. 
Uh, take, for instance, whatever New Year's resolution you might have made. The, the most obvious, the most common one that people make is uh, to start at, uh, start at the gym, uh, get fit. That's an obvious goal, isn't it? I'm going to get fit at the end of this year. Surely that's not pointless. Or perhaps if you are doing a university course, you can see the hurdles. You're jumping over them. You're going to get to the end of it. That's, that's an achievement. Or perhaps your career, you can see the progress you've made, the, the real difference you've made. Uh, but whatever we'd like to uh, cite uh, as evidence that our labours have a point, the teacher has a very different view. Do you see it there? He says, you're not seeing the nature of this world if you think that way. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. just goes round and round. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. The whole nature of this world is a pointless circle. You see, we think life is linear. We, we think uh, we're on a journey we're, uh, to a destination. We're going somewhere. But the teacher says, no, life is more like being uh, that guy at the gym on New Year's Day, making that New Year's resolution. Life is like running on a treadmill with all the vigour of a a sweaty man on the first day of this resolution. And when all is said and done, uh, after he's done all his effort, he's gone nowhere. Life is a circle. The circle of life. That's the phrase that we love, isn't it? Uh, The circle of life. In Ecclesiastes 1, a degree, yes, there is the circle of life. But don't think happy Lion King thoughts. Uh, Think a mouse on a wheel. Round and round and round. But, and for me, here is where the needle of this teaching really does sting us. Here's where we need to feel the weight, if you could excuse the irony of it, of how meaningless our activity is. You see, this poem in verses 4 to 7 of our chapter speaks of life under the sun being meaningless because it's this endless circle with no point of arrival. But right at the end of the book, in chapter 12, you have another poem It's really an echo, a a sort of a part two of this first poem. They're like the two frames of a giant picture that Ecclesiastes is giving us. And this poem at the end of uh, chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, says, yes, there is a point of arrival. Maybe I've overstated it at the start. There is a point of arrival, and that point is death. The circle does end. Death breaks the circle. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, are some of the most vivid, uh, evocative, powerful pictures of human life coming to an end. The picture of the circle slowing down. A picture that ends with this powerful image of death in verse 6 of chapter 12. The circle stops when the silver cord is severed. Or the golden bowl is broken before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. And we are a mouse on a wheel. The laps get slower and slower until we stop. But the wheel remains. The wheel remains and another mouse takes his place. Now we don't like this. I don't like this. We don't like talking about life this way. It seems uh, crass to talk about life this way. But the teacher says, you must learn this. Life, human activity under the sun is all twisted up. 
This earth, this uh, beautiful ball spinning around that orb of fire, the sun, this ball, all of it was made for us. All of it. And it's a very good ball. And yet, how futile is this? This ball that was made for us, that was here for our enjoyment, it remains. The wind keeps going round and round. The sun rises and sets and rises and sets. But we stop. We stop. Meaningless, says the teacher. Death comes like uh, some malevolent version of uh, the graffiti artist Banksy and in crude and violent and sudden letters, graffitis all over our life's endeavour, Havel. Vapour. You ever felt that? How could you not? This is life under the sun. I remember when uh, my best friend Greg died, age 22, uh, one of the things we had to do is to go collect his belongings out of the car, the car accident uh, where he had died. And uh, there in his bag we were told, Would you, do, you, do you want his belongings? This is all that remains of Greg, essentially, the policeman was saying. I remember feeling in two completely different minds. One part of my mind was thinking, of course I want that. That's all that remains of him. There's books in there. There was a, a book of a philosopher called Hans Gord Gadamer. I don't know anything about the guy, but he was going to spend the next six years doing a PhD on him to prove why he was wrong. Six years he was going to study him, uh, to go right in the heart of academia as a a Christian man and and to drop a bomb there, the gospel. All sorts of other things that made up his life. And I thought, yes, of course I want that. But another part of me thought as we drove uh, back up the freeway to Sydney with this bag, this backpack, all that remained of Greg, and I thought, this is ridiculous. Death had come and written Havel over all of those plans, all of that possibility that lay ahead of him. The sun rises and the sun sets and rises again. The wind and the water go on and on. But us, verse 4, do you see it? We come and then we go. Ben Folds uh, put it well in his song Fred Jones Part 2. He said, life barrels on like a runaway train where the passengers change, but they don't change anything. You get off, someone else can get on. I'm sorry, Mr. Jones, it's time. So there's his first proof. Our activity is pointless. Here's the second, verse 8. Life is meaningless because our activity is exhausting. More than one can say, he says in verse 8. I love that. Life is tiring, more than one could say, but we have a go, don't we? More than one could say, well, we, we really try to say all we can about how tired we are. It is like a national sport. How's life? I'm tired. We say it as if we're, it's a surprise that we're tired, but the, the teacher is saying, no, no, that's not a surprise. That's life under the sun. It's exhausting. Now, tomorrow, my second youngest daughter, Evie, will wake me somewhere between 5.30 and 6.00. And the day will begin. I'll stagger into the bathroom and shave uh, my face with an electric shaver. And at various points in that process, I will nod off back to sleep. (laughs) Then I'll stumble into the shower. And after I finish the shower, I'll get out and once again remember that I've left the towel in the bedroom. And I'll end up using a tiny little children's towel to dry myself (laughs) almost every morning. Then after getting dressed, I will go down and I will make some sandwiches for the kids for uh, their school lunch. And I will kid myself that I'm giving them a variety. Sometimes it's ham, sometimes it's cheese, sometimes it's ham and cheese. (laughs) 
and then I'll make them porridge. And just as I put them on the table, Jamie on cue, my oldest daughter, will ask for apple juice. And so I'll go back into the kitchen and get the apple juice. And as I bring it out, Evie will insist upon hers being in a pink cup. So I'll go back with the yellow cup and get her a pink cup. And on and on the day will go until we reach... Uh, about 8.30 when, uh, you know, in a crazy panic, we will try to get the kids out the door for the school run. Panic as if suddenly it's a surprise that school starts at the same time <laughs> every day. And then the day will start. Work will start and each day will be different, but not really. Life is a lot more like the movie Groundhog Day than any of us would like to admit. Now, here's the third proof. Our activity is meaningless because in the end it's, well, it's not new. It's unoriginal. We don't like that either. Verses 9 and 10, we say, surely not. I mean, isn't life more like the Walt Whitman poem? The the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. I'm doing something that no one else has done before. I'm going to make such an impact on this world that they will write songs about me. Or maybe you don't have that same delusion of grandeur, but we all think we're doing something new. Well, the teacher says that your verse that you're writing, uh, it's been written before. I'm a cover band, a a karaoke singer. Verse 9, what will be, has been, will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. We like to pretend that our life is not some pointless cycle by having new things in our life or doing new things and pretending that they are some new idea that's never been here before. I mean, take something, uh, for instance, you, you see that there's nothing new under the sun and you almost want to say to the teacher, what about the internet? You didn't have the internet. That's genuinely new, yeah? But isn't it interesting that the two major industries that have latched onto the internet, what are the, the two dominant industries that when the internet first began uh, that really latched onto it? Firstly, it was uh, boring as it may seem, libraries. Uh, places where we get information, and it's still the case, uh, things like Wikipedia we think is new. Uh, surely the Pedia at the end should give away that it's been around for a little while, the idea of getting information from a source. And libraries themselves have been around since uh, Alexandria in ancient Egypt. There there's nothing new. And what's the other major industry that's latched onto this new thing, the internet, that we've never had before? Pornography. Selling sex which is, of course, the oldest profession in the world. Verse 10, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. This new stuff that uh, not only we do and see in our world, even the the new stuff we acquire, it it makes me think that my life is not predictable. It's not predictable because I, I have a new coat. A new coat. A new phone. I have the new iPhone. I don't have the iPhone 3. I have the iPhone 4. No, actually, I have the iPhone 4S. (laughs) In the end, uh, we might have uh, more colour in our new thing, uh, more buttons to press, but they're not new, are they? The newness of our stuff is a a deception that gets our minds away from the predictable cycle of our lives. Uh, Have you ever experienced that, The, the buzz that comes from something new that very quickly fades? And I reckon this is a real danger for us. Uh, We are rich people, whether we admit it or not. Our capacity to uh, acquire and do new things is very high. We are the people that books like 100 Things to Do Before You Die or 100 Places to Go Before You Die. It was written for us so that we can think to ourselves, I'll only live a significant life if I do those 100 things. 
We are those who can have many, many new things, new trinkets, new toys, new houses, new wives, new husbands. But there's nothing new under the sun. No change of job or income. No relationship change can change the fact that we are on this cycle with only one end. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. And here's his final proof, verse 11. Our activity is meaningless because in the end it is insignificant. No one will remember it. I don't know about you, but I do hope that my work will be remembered, that it will stand the test of time, that it will mean something to those that follow. We want to believe that our efforts count for something, that they will make a difference. But even the works of the great ones are quickly forgotten. There is no remembrance of old, the teacher says. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. So there it is. The start of the teacher's lesson. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils at under the sun? As we close, uh, how do you think we're meant to respond to this? Well, I think first and foremost, as we begin out on this series, uh, let me encourage you to respond this way. Let it soak in. Let it soak in. The teacher is going to keep on at us about these things for the next few months. It will be unrelenting. He will keep at us until with him we are able to honestly evaluate life under the sun such that we finally slow down enough to actually listen to him. That's our problem, isn't it, with life? That's why we find this lesson so hard to hear. Our life is filled with endless activity. We don't stop to listen. It's how we block out this reality. It's like, again, my second youngest daughter, Evie. If she knows she's in trouble, if she knows there's something she doesn't want to hear, what she starts to do is run around the lounge room as quickly as possible and as determined as possible, saying, you can't tell me, I'm running. (laughs) And we laugh, but that's us. Can't tell me I'm busy. I'm busy living this life. I'm busy being active. And the teacher says, stop. Listen. And if we do, it will be the start, the beginning of seeing something we will not be able to see until that moment. He will strip away from us all the places we find meaning. Our wealth, our work, our power, our relationships, our pleasure... He will teach us one by one to look under each of them, look under them like rocks where we hide our treasure and say, look, there's nothing there. Nothing there, nothing there, nothing there. Nothing under the sun is your treasure, he'll say. And how we need him to do this, to dismantle our lives piece by piece, to teach us really to unlearn the worldview that we've been taught, that we've taught ourselves, that thinks that life under the sun is where meaning is found. A worldview where the good things of this creation, the good things that our God has given us, have become the ultimate things for us. And we all know people like that, who live for whatever it may be, live for work, who that's who they are, live for their job or their house or their family, that's meaning for them. We know people like that because we're people like that. And the Bible's word for people like that, people like us, sinners who worship created things rather than the creator, who make the gift, not the giver, their source of meaning. 
But in the end, and this is one of the things that Ecclesiastes will teach us, when you make a good thing the ultimate thing, you are absolutely guaranteeing that that thing will drive you into the ground, literally. For there is a judgment on such a life lived under the sun. It is the ultimate judgment. The one who gives life and breath and everything else stops giving. Stops giving us life and in its place death comes and renders all our gifts that we cling to and worship and hold onto for meaning as meaningless. We're so insulated from this reality, from the vapour of life under the sun, insulated by, like Evie, our constant activity. Can't tell me I'm running. Can't listen. Well, the teacher is going to stop us very still and say, listen, you need to know this before the music stops, before the cord severs, before the picture shatters on the ground. If all life's meaning and glory and wonder ends for you under the sun, your life is a vapour, and one day death will come and ride over the top of all your endeavour, as great as it may be, Havel, vapour. Only when we see that, only when we're so disillusioned with life under the sun, will we be prepared to search for life beyond it. And that's our only hope, isn't it? As we'll see as we go through these weeks, we need something or someone to come from beyond the sun to bring meaning to all of this. See, in the end, the teacher is doing what all scripture is doing. God wants us to feel the weight or lack thereof of our life and go searching for him, the one from beyond the sun. To see Jesus, to see the only one who has come from beyond the sun to us. I mean, that's the wonder of Christmas, isn't it? The, the one who has come from beyond the sun, come from heaven, come from the place that governs life under the sun. Come and experience this frustrating life with us. Lived a life just like ours and just like us had Havel written over his life by death. Even him, as we're told in chapter 2, the wise and the fool meet the same fate under the sun, death. Even him. But as we grow more disillusioned with life under the sun and look beyond the sun, we will see in him this one, the only one, this one who shared life and death with us. We'll see the one who has destroyed death. That changes things, doesn't it? To have one who has come into this world of an endless cycle of pointlessness that ends in death. To have one who has said, no, this does not end in death, as he says in John 11. The one who says in John 10, declares in this world under the sun, this frustrating world, he says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. That's a huge claim, isn't it? A huge claim. And if tonight you know nothing of him or little or are not prepared to trust him, let me encourage you to keep coming back in these weeks, keep coming back to hear the one who has come from beyond the sun to offer you meaningful life. Come to the Christianity Explored course. Jesus wants to take us from futility to life. He comes to us and says, look, in all your constant movement, all your work and power and pleasure and relationships, you're living and you're breathing, yes, but you're not alive. You're existing, you're marking time. But in me there is life, overflowing, purposeful, substantial, death-proof life. I have come to give you life and life to the full. I have come to give you the life you were created for. 
And so let me invite you to come and let us listen with great care as the teacher gathers us and then dismantles our lives piece by piece, dismantling the edifice of uh, what we call life under the sun, exposing its hollow foundations and watch as the word of God fills that hollow, vacant, vapour-like gap with the superabundant life that only the one from beyond the sun can offer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word speaks about real life, the life we know as frustrating as it is, as heartbreaking as it is sometimes. We thank you that your word... Uh, is honest and disillusions us where we need that but we thank you for the mighty word of your son the living word the one who offers life and life to the full father god as you dismantle our lives before us in these weeks may you fill it fill it with the lord jesus amen